1: You can listen to But We Loved on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
5: Welcome to
3: Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
5: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Guy Fawkes and the Gunpowder Plot. Uh, which our predecessors, Sarah and Dublina talked about in a two part podcast back in 2011 have become part of the popular culture on both sides of the Atlantic. Definitely more so in the UK, but here too, (laughs) like we have Guy Fawkes masks at protests and all of this other stuff. Uh, But that plot to blow up Parliament was not history's only attempt to violently destroy the British government and spark a popular uprising. It's just become way more famous than the one we are going to talk about today. That incident that we're talking about today happened more than 200 years later, but it's not nearly as well remembered or in some ways popularized. uh, And that is the Cato Street Conspiracy.
2: And it's been a while, but we've talked a bit on past podcasts about the economic and cultural climate of Great Britain in the early 19th century, including in our 2013 episode on the Luddite Rebellion. In the first decades of the 1800s, the Industrial Revolution was well underway, and while much of Britain was still quite rural and agrarian, parts of the nation were also urbanizing really rapidly. People were moving to cities faster than the cities themselves could keep up, leading to overcrowding, unsanitary living conditions, poverty, crime, and the rapid spread of disease. Food production hadn't kept up with the shifts in economy and industrialization, leading to food shortages. Inflation and laws meant to regulate the grain market,
5: which tended to favor landowners over workers and consumers. As the nation was becoming more urbanized, work was also becoming more mechanized. And as a result, skilled craftspeople and agricultural workers were increasingly being pushed out of their jobs. At the same time, working conditions in the nation's newly opened factories were often very, very poor. People worked long hours for low pay in conditions that ranged along a spectrum from unpleasant to unsafe. Disciplinary action for even minor infractions tended to be really severe, including everything from withholding people's pay to physical punishments. People who worked in
2: these factories were prohibited from organizing themselves to advocate for better conditions, fairer treatment, or better pay. Parliament had passed what was known as the Combination Act in 1799, which received royal assent on July 12th of that year. Combination here is a synonym for union. Uh, Any two men who combined or unionized to try to get better pay or reduced hours could be sentenced to two months of hard labor. And the same was true of anyone who tried to convince
5: anyone else to leave work, in other words, to go on strike. Although the Combination Act technically applied to organizations of employers as well, it was really only enforced for workers. So not only were people working in unpleasant, difficult, and sometimes dangerous conditions, but they were also prohibited from getting together to try to do anything about it.
2: All of this contributed to things like the Luddite Rebellion that we mentioned a few moments ago. And a few years before today's subject took place, the Luddites had been protesting against mechanization in the textile industry. In 1811, the Luddites famously smashed knitting machines, ultimately leading to the deployment of a military force to stop those protests in 1812.
5: Today's conspiracy took place just a little later than that in 1820. The same trends of urbanization and mechanization and all of the downsides that they were bringing along with them had continued in the years since the Luddite Rebellion. By then, the Napoleonic Wars and the War of 1812 had both also ended, both of them in 1815. Many of the soldiers and sailors who had previously been away fighting in the British Empire's military were now home again, and they were all competing for the same very scarce supply of jobs. Arthur Thistlewood was one of the many radical voices
2: in Great Britain protesting against all of this. He was baptized on December 4th of 1774 and probably born that year to William Thistlewood and Anne Burnett, who were unmarried. Arthur's father was a stock breeder, and his mother was a shopkeeper's daughter.
5: A lot of the details about his early life and his upbringing are very hazy or contradictory, and this continues into his adult life as well, since he seems to have invented a highly romanticized and embellished biography for himself. He definitely did serve in two different militia, first as an ensign and then as a lieutenant. He may have been in Paris during the Reign of Terror, although that's a little harder to substantiate. He claimed to have visited the Americas and the Caribbean, but that seems less likely.
2: When Thistlewood
5: was in his 20s, he
2: had a series of brushes with money, each of them ending abruptly and putting him back where he started financially. He's reported to have been married twice. One was a Miss Bruce around 1791 or 1792. And the other was Jane Worsley in 1804, although it's possible that that first report is erroneous. In both cases, these women came from money, but that money reverted back to each of their families uh, because each of those women died in childbirth.
5: Yeah, there's, there's some speculation that maybe that 1791 or 92. Uh, marriage was, was a mistaken identity or someone else, but uh, it happened at least once in that pattern. And he did also have a surviving son named Julian, who was born around 1804. That was either by Jane Worsley or by another woman. But regardless, when he married again in 1808, this time to a woman named Susan Wilkinson, she accepted the young Julian as her own. Around the same time,
2: Thistlewood came into an inheritance, which he sold in exchange for an annuity. But his buyer almost immediately went bankrupt, leaving Thistlewood without his property and
5: his buyer without the money to pay him. So at this point, he had come in some money and then lost it. Uh, Several times. At least two, possibly three times. And this cycle of coming into money and then losing it again seems to have made him both bitter and ready to fight back against a system that he thought was stacked against him and against the working class. When Thistlewood made his way to London sometime before 1810, he found a community of people who were ready to stoke both his bitterness and his sense of being economically wronged. Once there, he quickly made connections
2: to some of London's most radical thinkers and activists, including members of the Jacobin Club that formed in the wake of the French Revolution. Another in Thistlewood's newfound circle was Thomas Spence, who was the de facto leader of a loose collection of radical organizations, all of them in one way or another advocating for revolution. Spence was against the monarchy, state religion, and the aristocracy, and he was in favor of true universal suffrage, although many of his allies advocated universal male suffrage only.
5: Spence had kept various book stalls, and he opened a bookstore known as the Hive of Liberty, where he sold revolutionary tracts, including ones that he had written himself. He also published a magazine known as Pigs' Meat, in which he called for things like the forced nationalization and equal redistribution of all the land in Britain. Fence thought that private property ownership was giving uh, the rich a permanent domination over the poor. And the only answer was to take all of the land and then divide it up equally.
2: At first, Thistlewood's activities within these circles didn't really get a lot of attention from authorities. But shortly before the end of the Napoleonic Wars, he was part of a group that was trying to send an emissary to France to essentially invite Napoleon to invade Britain directly and overthrow the monarchy. This plan completely fizzled out after Thistlewood's promised funding of it, which was supposed to come from a lawsuit, failed to materialize. But it was this plan to petition Napoleon that finally caught the government's eye, and from that point, they were really keeping a pretty steady gaze on Thistlewood.
5: We will get into what happened after Thistlewood was under the government's watchful eye after a quick sponsor break. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks.
0: When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules—
1: No one is there to destroy you.
0: I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast.
5: Although Thomas Spence himself died in 1814, his followers, who became known as the Spencean philanthropists or just Spenceans, were still active two years later in the midst of a movement for parliamentary reform, and Arthur Thistlewood had become one of their key organizers. One of their
2: strategies was to piggyback their revolutionary efforts on more moderate calls for reform. And this is what happened at the Spa-Fields riot on December 2nd, 1816. The meeting scheduled at Spa-Fields that day was supposed to be an update on a petition to reform Parliament. However, Thistlewood was on the planning committee, and he and others were working behind the scenes to use the meeting to foment rebellion. Ahead of that meeting, the organizers had visited taverns and barracks to sow the seeds of a revolutionary riot, and they strategically positioned their allies within the crowd to try to incite violence. This
5: didn't entirely go as planned. Although some in the crowd did become violent, and the riot went on for hours, most of the attendees at this meeting remained peaceful. Thistlewood's ambitious goals of taking the Tower of London and the Bank of England and stealing weapons and liberating prisoners did not happen at all. They did march to the Tower, with Thistlewood leading the way, but order was restored by nightfall. Although there
2: was sufficient evidence to arrest Thistlewood and his accomplices in the Spafields riot immediately, the government also had a network of spies placed within the Spencians, and arrests would have disrupted that intelligence that they were gathering. So it was May of the following year when Thistlewood and his family were about to flee to the Americas when he was finally arrested and tried. Sources uh, actually contradict. Either he was acquitted or the charge was withdrawn when the key witness turned out to be a pimp and a perjurer.
5: Yeah, unfortunately, that trial does not seem to be in the online records uh, at Old Bailey. <laughs> so I'm not sure which is correct, but two different sources said clearly different things. After this failed attempt to start a revolution at the Spa Fields riots, Thistlewood increasingly believed that only an armed coup would bring the revolution that he thought England needed. He hatched yet another plot to take over the Bank of England during the St. Bartholomew's Fair on September 6, 1817, although that effort once again failed.
2: At this point, a lot of the remaining Spensians had grown wary of all the overt attempts to start a violent rebellion. Many of them went back to advocating for reforms from the taverns in small groups that were less easily tracked and apprehended. Thistlewood, on the other hand, doubled down. In 1818, he challenged Home Secretary Henry Addington, Lord Sidmouth, who had previously served as Prime Minister, to a duel. For the first time, Thistlewood wound up in prison, starting a year-long sentence for threatening a breach of peace in May of 1818.
5: Not long after Thistlewood's release from prison... On August 16th, 1819, the Manchester Yeomanry, armed with sabers, violently broke up a protest for parliamentary reform in what came to be known as the Peterloo Massacre. In addition to those who were killed by members of the Yeomanry, others were trampled in their efforts to escape. At least 10 people were killed and hundreds more were injured.
2: The immediate aftermath of the Peterloo Massacre did spark outrage and calls for the types of reforms that the protesters had been demanding. But in the end, the government sanctioned the way the yeomanry and magistrates had handled the protest. And in response to it, Parliament also passed the six acts. This was a set of six separate acts that limited the rights to do things like assemble and print political material, while also implementing harsher punishments for printing materials deemed seditious or obscene. One of the acts, the Training Prevention Act, made it illegal to have military-style training and drills outside of official organizations like municipal militias. One of their main proponents for these acts was the Home Secretary, that same man that Thistlewood had gone to prison for challenging to a duel.
5: This is maybe the last straw. There's a lot of theories about exactly what prompted Thistlewood to go from, like, a, a radical revolutionary calling for you know, a total change in the British government to somebody who was literally planning to assassinate the entire cabinet. But at some point after the uh, Peterloo massacre, Thistlewood did indeed start planning to assassinate the entirety of the prime minister's cabinet and to replace them all with the provisional government that he thought would truly be both for and by the people. The cabinet met for dinners on a regular basis, and he planned to use one of these dinners to kill them all at once. He and his co-conspirators rented rooms on Cato Street to plan and to assemble and then to do things like make hand grenades.
2: Thistlewood considered figuring out a way to destroy the cabinet without the convenience of a state dinner after the death of George III on January 29, 1820. Following the king's death, the cabinet dinners were temporarily suspended, but they did resume fairly quickly. The first one after that was to take place in the home of the Earl of Harrowby in Grosvenor Square on February 23rd, 1820. Thistlewood learned of it on the 22nd through an announcement published in the New Times. And the announcement itself may have been brought to his attention by a man named George Edwards.
5: The plan was to go to Grosvenor Square with a note for the Earl, and then once a servant had opened the door, rush in brandishing pistols, subdue all the servants, block their escape routes, and if any of them tried to escape, they would use hand grenades to kill all the servants in
2: the household. Then, according to court testimony, they were planning to go on to the dining room and, quote, the men... who were to go into the room were to rush in directly and to murder all they found in the room, good or bad. And if there were any good ones, they would murder them for keeping bad company. One of the conspirators, James Ings, volunteered to rush the room first and behead everyone there and take the heads of the Lords, Castlereagh and Sidmouth for later display. They were the secretaries
5: of state for foreign and home affairs. Once this mass assassination was complete, the conspirators planned to move on to loot and destroy nearby barracks and stables and then take over the Lord Mayor's residence to use as the seat of their provisional government. That done, they were going to raid the bank and, if, all, if at all possible, come away with the books still intact so that they could use them as evidence for wrongdoing within London's more affluent class. But once again,
2: Thistlewood's attempt to start a rebellion was thwarted. Thomas Hyden, one of the men Thistlewood had tried to recruit, wrote a letter to Lord Castlereagh detailing this plot, which he gave to Lord Harrowby in a park. Lord Harrowby immediately canceled the dinner and
5: informed the Bow Street runners that something was afoot. Hyden wasn't Thistlewood's only undoing, though. George Edwards, one of Thistlewood's co-conspirators, was really a spy for the government. He had been passing information about Thistlewood's activities to the Bow Street Runners the entire time. There's even some suggestion that he set Thistlewood up in all of this, not only calling his attention to the advertisement about the dinner, but actually placing that advertisement in the New Times himself. At trial, the court reporter, who usually posted those sorts of announcements, testified that he had not placed one for February 23rd and that the one that appeared in the New Times that day uh, or the day before didn't even sound like one he had written. Regardless of how it all came about. Bow Street runners raided the
2: conspirators' loft before they even left their Cato Street lodgings. In the ensuing melee, Thistlewood killed one officer, Richard Smithers, with his rapier before escaping
5: and evading capture until the following morning. We will talk about the trial and its aftermath after one more quick sponsor break. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks.
0: When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet...
4: Listen to Season 2 of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
5: Although there were certainly others involved in the planning in some way. In the end, 13 conspirators in the plot to massacre the cabinet were arrested. Most of them were laborers or craftspeople in some way, so they were shoemakers, carpenters, tailors, and the like. Two turned King's evidence, which meant that the trial could proceed without blowing the cover of George Edwards by having to call him to the stand to testify. One of the cases was also dropped.
2: The trials began on April 17th, 1820, and the guilt of most of those on trial was never really in question. Witness after witness named Thistlewood as the ringleader and key organizer of the entire operation.
5: The defense of one of the co-conspirators in particular stands out, William Davidson, who was tried a little later in April. Davidson, born in Jamaica, was the son of Jamaica's white attorney general and a black Jamaican woman. He had been sent to England to receive an education that would be on par with his father's position.
2: At trial, Davidson said in his own defense, quote, I was accidentally drawn into Cato Street in the way I have said, but knew nothing of a plot to plunder, burn or massacre. I did not know that any such plot was in existence. I am not such a man. If my color be against me, I am not void of all feeling and would not act the murderer or the brute. He then went on to suggest that it was all a case of mistaken identity, that he had been mistaken for another black man, which had also happened to him at the Sunday school where he taught. According to Davidson, all the witnesses who described, quote, a man of color were talking about some
5: other man and not him. The judge tried to assuage Davidson's fears that his color was being used as a strike against him, saying, quote, You may rest most perfectly assured that with respect to the color of your countenance, no prejudice either has or will exist in any part of this court against you. A man of color is entitled to British justice as much as the fairest British subject. But
2: Davidson's argument of mistaken identity did not lead to an acquittal. He and all the other men on trial for the conspiracy were all found guilty and sentenced to be taken to their execution on hurdles, hanged, beheaded, and quartered. Five of those sentences were commuted to transportation to New South Wales, and the men transported arrived there on September 30th, 1820.
5: The executions of the others, who were Arthur Thistlewood, James Ings, James Brunt, William Davidson, and Richard Tidd, were carried out on May 1st, 1820. Uh, Although the carrying on hurdles and the quartering afterward were dropped from their sentence for what was framed as humanitarian reasons. Thistlewood's last statement before the execution was, quote, my only sorrow is that soil... Thistlewood's last statement before his execution was, quote, My only sorrow is that soil should be a theater for slaves, for cowards, and for despots. My motives, I doubt not, will hereafter be justly appreciated. Their execution drew an enormous crowd, and a railing at St. Sepulchre's church collapsed under the weight of all the people who had climbed up onto it for a better view.
2: The bodies remained hanging for half an hour before the beheading. An axe was specially made for the execution, but the actual beheading wound up being carried out by a barber surgeon, wearing a mask and using a surgical knife. According to William Thackeray's account, James Brunt's head was dropped while it was being displayed to the crowd, which was one of the incidents cited in efforts to get beheading removed from the punishments for traitors.
5: Eventually, all the other ancillary steps to the execution itself were removed in the from the punishments for traitors. So people would just be hanged instead of taken to the gallows on hurdles and then hanged and then beheaded and then quartered, which was a lot. Although there was plenty of more moderate activism around the rights of workers and reforms of parliament and all those sorts of things, after this point, the failed Cato Street Rebellion really put an end to the most radical and violent arm of the labor rights movement at the time the Spensian philanthropists effectively dissolved. And at the same time, the government pointed to the Cato Street Rebellion as evidence that the Six Acts and the Combination Acts that had previously been passed were all necessary to keep order.
2: The location where the conspirators were discovered was marked with a plaque in 1977.
5: It has a historical marker. Uh Not the same name recognition, though, as Guy Fox. Plot to blow up parliament. No, not at all. <laughs> Even though they had the same core objective, which was to destroy the government and start over. So that was the Cato Street, uh, conspiracy. Uh, do you have less conspiratorial listener, man? I have. Uh, I have. <laughs> <laughs> a little. I mean, it's, it's about the Tuskegee syphilis study, which, uh, could be framed as a conspiracy based on how terrible it was. Uh, It is from Emily. Emily says, good morning, Tracy and Holly. I'm writing to you about some comments made during the discussion of the study design for the Tuskegee Syphilis Study. Please don't get me wrong. As someone from Alabama, I feel a huge amount of shame when people discuss the Tuskegee Syphilis Study. The U.S. Public Health Service, as well as the local physicians involved in the study, are beneath contempt for their deception and extremely unethical behavior. There was no informed consent, which is sacrosanct in research now. The incentives provided to participants were probably coercive. And the, uh, and though whistleblower Peter Buxton made several attempts to have the study stopped, both the AMA and NMA supported the study and it continued. Finally began coming to an end once it leaked, was leaked to the Associated Press in the early 1970s. I'm more interested in addressing a technical point raised during the discussion of the additional autopsies for control and the term, although the term was not used case participants. I would like to step briefly away from the fact that this was a very bad study and draw a distinction between that and a bad study design. It is not a bad study designed for controls to uh, who become cases to be considered cases. In epidemiology we have case cohort designs developed during the 1980s which allow for a group of participants to be sampled at the beginning of a study and followed for a set period of time. Uh, at that time they may have originally been cases, remain controls throughout or transition from controls to cases at some point. Another design that would allow this is called incidence density sampling. Here controls are selected at the same time participants become cases. Time is a matching variable, although you can also match on race, age, sex, etc. Here again, a subject may be selected as a control early on in the study and a case later. Uh, and then she goes on to talk some more about um, how people uh, interpret study design and um, in uh, in, the, in the field of epidemiology, uh, to get to the last paragraph, the problem with this portion of the Tuskegee syphilis study is that once participants became cases, they were not provided with essentially life-saving treatment, nor were their families, who were also affected by the disease, possible infections for spouses, sexual partners and children, loss of the primary breadwinner, resulting in even lower financial and educational opportunities. As a researcher in the healthcare field, I daily deal with the aftermath of this study as it affects our research and participants faith in what we are doing. Thank you for your very excellent podcast. You ladies do an amazing job. I've been listening for years and I've heard every episode at least once, often more than that. Emily, thank you so much, Emily, for that clarification. Um, the comment that we made about, um, how moving from the, the control group to the, the participant group, um, was not a good thing to do came actually from a report from the Hastings Center, which is a bioethics organization. Um, that came out in 1978, so it would have been before uh, case co- cohort designs were, uh, were developed and that paper called it, quote, a strikingly inept violation of standard research procedure. So when that paper was written, the idea of someone moving from the, the control group to the participant group was viewed very differently than apparently it is now in the field of epidemiology. So thank you for writing in, um, with that clarification, Emily. Also, we had another healthcare provider, uh, write in, ask us to give a shout out for getting tested. That's a good thing to do.
2: <laughs> I, I'm always happy to give a shout out for getting tested. For a yeah. number of things, frankly. Right. Uh, right. You should be screening your health on a regular basis.
5: Yes. Uh, and, and, uh, syphilis is definitely a disease that still exists. And because, as we talked about, uh, its symptoms can resolve on their own without treatment, a lot of people become infected and don't realize. That they are. So that is our plug. Testing's important. Uh if you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're a history podcast at howstuffworks.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash and History and on Twitter at Mist History. Our Tumblr, history.tumblr.com We're also on Pinterest and Instagram at Mist History. You can come to our parent company's website, which is HowStuffWorks.com, where there's a lot of stuff, you more than you might expect, about various uh, conspiracies that have happened or are pur- uh, purported to have happened throughout history. You can also come to our website, which is MistInHistory.com, and you will find the archive of every single episode we have ever done, show notes for all of our uh, past episodes Holly and I have done. We are now publishing the show notes on the same page as the podcast, so all that stuff is together So you can do all that and a whole lot more at HowStuffWorks.com or MissedInHistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.